and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, Kimberly Strassel joins us to talk all things domestic policy, including the future of the country under the Joe Biden administration. We'll get into the infrastructure bill, the future of the filibuster, the state of the press, and finally, whether progressive policies will hurt Democrats in the next election cycle. But before I bring her on a little bit more about Kimberly, Kimberly Strassel is a member of the editorial board for the Wall Street Journal. She writes editorials as well as the weekly Potomac Watch political column. She is a regular contributor to Sunday political shows, including CBS's Face the Nation, Fox News Sunday, and NBC's Meet the Press. She is the author of The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech, and she's also the author of Resistance at All Cost, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. Kimberly, it is a pleasure to have you on She Thinks Today. It's great to be here, Beverly. Thanks for having me. I know we're going to get into a lot of domestic policy talk, but I thought we would start by just focusing on the meaning of words. You are a journalist, so you write words for a living, yet a word that seems to have lost some of its meaning in Washington, D.C. is the word infrastructure. We're going to get into the infrastructure bill, but first, what do you make of a word like infrastructure losing its meaning, and do you think that that does have deep concerns, not just about this word, but other words in the English language? Yes, I do care a lot about words. Infrastructure is now being redefined completely differently. But you have to ask yourself why that is. And I think it says something very profound about Democrats' acknowledgement that the agenda that they are trying to push through with Joe Biden's infrastructure proposal is not one that most Americans agree with. Um, because if you were proud of all of your climate agenda, you would call it your climate agenda. And if you were proud of all of your union giveaways, you would call them your union giveaways. Uh, they know that they are, these are not ideas that are popular with a lot of people. And so you have to give it another name. And infrastructure is something that sounds wholesome, sounds good, sounds some, something that always has bipartisan support. Who doesn't want a, a, a bridge that works or a road that doesn't have potholes? Americans tend to associate that with a, a core government function. Uh, and so they've put that out there. I think there are some other words they're redefining too. Uh, Joe Biden's definition of bipartisanship is an, uh, another <laughs> and unity. one. And unity. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just, and unity. And so I think that when we look at the reality that Democrats are attempting to try to change words, you have to actually ask about the motivation. And I think that says something a little deeper. Well, let's let's get into the motivation of it since we're on this this um, topic. What do you think the whole motivation is behind this? Well, on the infrastructure bill, uh, look, I think you can see it in both the COVID quote, relief bill that was, there's another word, relief, uh, the, the COVID bill that was passed earlier this year um, and this infrastructure bill. What you're actually seeing is Democrats, uh, I don't know if they're fearful that they will only have uh, the congressional majorities they do for two years, but there is this intense push uh, by the ascendant wing of the party, the progressive wing, to get through as much of their wish list in as short a time as possible. Because Democrats have learned something over the years, they do this much better than Republicans, that if you can get something on the books, 
uh, even if it isn't exactly what you wanted, it becomes very difficult to ever get rid of it. Look at Obamacare, which really was a non-popular law, an unpopular law, and uh, we still have it. Uh, and so the idea is get it into law, get it into statute, and then you know, you'll know you have a very good chance to build on it. So these two bills have encompassed everything but infrastructure, uh, everything from unionization uh, procedures to uh, uh, infor- broadband to more money for health care, uh, and the list goes on, climate. Uh, so this is a, a grab bag of everything they've been wanting, um, and again, just to get it on the books. And we're talking about increasing the debt by an additional $2.3 trillion if this piece of legislation is pushed through under, looks like what may be reconciliation, the reconciliation process, which we'll get into. But when we're talking about a debt that is increasing, of course, as you said, we had the COVID so-called relief bill. We had money spent under the Trump administration. Are Americans concerned about the debt? Are they seeing these numbers going up and putting two and two together and realizing, hmm, they're going to have to raise my taxes in order to help out with all this debt that we have? I think some Americans are cottoning on to that uh, and beginning to understand that there isn't a, a free ride forever. You know, we do have a lot of liberals in Congress who have uh, come to believe in modern monetary theory, this idea that you can simply um, spend uh, limitlessly and borrow forever uh, and that there are no consequences. We know that's not the case. At some point, this is going to come back to bite us and hopefully not in some cataclysmic way. Uh, but even Democrats understand that Americans are concerned about uh, rising debt. Um, the Biden administration certainly is, which is why they're now saying that, for instance, this infrastructure bill, they want to come up with ways to pay for it. Uh, right now, they're going after their favorite boogeyman, which is um, corporate America, and that is their proposal for how to cover some of the spending in this bill. Um, but at a certain point, look, all of the provisions that they have, everyone understands that there simply isn't going to be enough money from corporate America. And by the way, I would also point out that when you raise corporate America's tax rates, you're actually raising taxes on Americans because corporations don't pay taxes. Uh, they just raise their prices and pass along that to customers. So we're already on the verge of seeing, in essence, a, a sort of sales tax hike on Americans if these corporate procedures or corporate rules go through. Um, but at a certain point, yeah, you're going to have to go after Americans and, and look at um, Joe Biden's shifting definition of, of the income levels. You know, we were told no one under $4,000. Now it turns out that counts for if you're a married couple uh, for each of you. So, uh, I mean, your money combined together rather. So they're going to, they're really going to have to come after just average folk in the end, if they want to have any shot of paying for some of these proposals, many of which we haven't even seen the price tags for yet. Yeah, and I th- I think most Americans have noticed that already food prices and gas prices are going up, and that will continue to increase if the infrastructure bill does pass. Now, what it looks like Democrats want to do is push this through the Senate, through the reconciliation process, because they're trying to avoid the filibuster. Can you explain to us what the reconciliation process is and whether or not you think that can be used in this infrastructure bill? Yeah. So just to lay the groundwork, what they're actually doing at the moment is is pretending, in my mind, I think it's a ruse uh, to be sitting down with Republicans and trying to come to some 
proposal on which everyone can agree. But since Republicans are asking for something that's more like $600 billion or $800 billion and focus very much on traditional infrastructure like roads and bridges and not all of the rest of what Democrats want, I, I don't think that that effort is necessarily going to pan out because so far we haven't seen a lot of appetite by the Democratic majorities for cooperation. So they're looking at reconciliation, which is a uh, traditionally been viewed as a once a year process in which you can uh, set levels of spending and revenue for the government. Um, and because it's a budget process, it's laid out in the 1974 Budget Act, uh, you can do it with just 50 votes. Uh, you don't have to have, it's not subject to a filibuster. Um, now, for many complicated reasons, we didn't do a bill last year, a reconciliation bill. It got pushed into this year. And so that's what they use their first COVID bill for. They use that reconciliation. In theory, they have one more shot at the apple for this year. Uh, there are some discussions about whether or not the Senate parliamentarian would let them do more. Uh, we don't have a final answer on that yet. Um, the real problem with reconciliation and this infrastructure bill is the pure spending pieces, yes, they can probably get it through reconciliation. But there are very strict rules governing the process uh, that are designed to make sure it remains focused on spending and revenue. And so things that tend to fall in the straight up policy area, for instance, that $15 minimum wage increase, uh, it doesn't necessarily affect government revenues or spending. It's simply a rule that applies to other people. Those things aren't usually allowed by the parliamentarian in reconciliation. And this infrastructure bill contains a lot of such policy, in particular on the union front. Um, and so they could use reconciliation for this, but they wouldn't be able to get a bunch of it through. And something I've wondered, you mentioned the $15 minimum wage, which was excluded from the COVID relief package by the Senate parliamentarian. It makes her really powerful in Washington, D.C. right now. I think of Joe Manchin, very powerful, um, since he tends to be a swing vote in the Senate. And then you have the Senate parliamentarian who is deciding what can be passed through reconciliation or not. Do you think she feels the pressure? Oh, I have no doubt. You know, and this, by the way, this has happened to her before and at the hands of Republicans, um, you know, don't forget back during uh, the first uh, year of the Trump administration, they were attempting, Republicans attempted to use uh, reconciliation to get rid of Obamacare. And she wouldn't allow a number of the key provisions. And there was a big uh, Republican push led by Ted Cruz to overrule the parliamentarian, which thank goodness uh, did not prevail. And by the way, is a good reason why it's not good to set new precedents because you're not going to be in power forever. Um, but yet this entire situation of a 50-50 Senate um, is creating all kinds of new power brokers in Washington. And, you know, Joe Manchin has been perhaps one of the most prominent ones. But if you think about it, it's fascinating. Any one senator could hold immense power when you have that kind of a division. And I think we're going to see a lot more moments of certain individuals in the sun over the next two years. And even beyond this, there's been a lot of discussion about the filibuster in general. Even the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked about the filibuster this week in reference to police reform after the Derek Chauvin verdict was released. And she made the statement that since De Republicans and Democrats are always already working together um, on the front of police reform, that, quote, he doesn't believe having a discussion about the filibuster is constructive to that. So she that's a quote about what she's saying Joe Biden said, the president said. 
Where are we on the filibuster? This continues to come up. I think since police reform is front and center in many people's minds right now, that question is coming up. Um, what do you think, where, we, where are we going on the filibuster? Well, it's been quite remarkable because I have to be honest that when we first started out in this new administration and both Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema said that they weren't going to vote to get rid of the filibuster. I have my doubts as to how how much they would actually hold up that that statement because the pressure is immense. It's going to get even more intense as time goes on. Um, but so far, they have held really strong. You had Joe Manchin probably about a month ago come out, and I did wonder if, if he was wobbling because he said that, well, maybe some reform would be worthwhile. Uh, he talked about bringing back the talking filibuster. He's since come back out and suggested that he would not allow any reform that in any way would water down the 60 vote standard. Um, because that is, you saw this happen in both the press and among Democratic activists. As soon as Manchin and Cinema came out and said, we won't vote to kill the filibuster, instead the watchword became, let's reform it instead. Now, of course, all of these proposals that those progressives were putting forward were just other ways to kill the filibuster under the guise of reform. Manchin and Cinema both seem to have ruled out that as well, too. But one thing that's sort of interesting is that you almost watch them and it's almost as if they're pleading with their party to just take them at their word and move on um, and, and adopt the mentality that if anything is going to get done, it needs to get done via some outreach to the other side. That is not where the rest of the party is right now. So there's going to continue to be a, a huge amount of pressure on both of them to bend or crack or get on board with reform. Um, and in the meantime, you're also going to continue to see Chuck Schumer look for other ways to get around the rules. I mentioned earlier that he's trying to to bully the parliamentarian into letting him use reconciliation more than once. But when you get to these policy bills, you know, and, and it's the, as I mentioned, union stuff, but also policing reform is another great example. That doesn't have to do with federal spending or federal revenues, or at least very little of it. Um, you can't, simply can't do those uh, via reconciliation. So that's why you're going to see this campaign continue. So far, it sounds as though the institution is prevailing. Yeah, I know that even Al Sharpton and some others have promised to go after Senator Manchin and Cinema, calling them racist for their opposition to blowing up the filibuster. And we've heard this word racist also being called against the Georgia election law. We talked about the meaning of the word infrastructure. What about the meaning of the word racist or racism these days? Has it lost its meaning because it's used to define so many things these days? I worry about that. I really do. You know, I have three kids and we have these conversations about uh, mistakes and bad areas in America's history uh, and how we've moved beyond those, uh, but also talking about, you know, what is racism? And it's increasingly difficult, especially for the younger generation anymore, to, to understand that and to realize the difference between this political rhetoric and what is true racism and what we should be on the guard against and what we should all be united in condemning. And if you water it down, that word, as you said, simply loses its meaning. And to call what is happening in Georgia uh, racist or Jim Crow is absolutely absurd, simply on the merits. 
for the simple fact that the provisions in the law that they are calling racist are provisions that are uh, a lot more generous to voters than those that exist in, say, Joe Biden's home state of Delaware. And nobody is suggesting Delaware uh, is a racist state. So we need to tone down the rhetoric. Uh, I don't think that that's going to happen because right now Democrats simply see it as too effective a tool to try to bludgeon people into their uh, agenda. And we've seen that corporations have gotten involved in this woke meaning and woke mentality. We saw that with the Georgia electional law, you had uh, Coca-Cola and Delta speaking out, saying that this law was was racist and, and should not be passed. You even have this week the other side of this coin where you had Georgia faith leaders calling for a national boycott of Home Depot because of their non-response to the voting law, because Home Depot decided to focus solely on, I don't know, home improvement, that all of a sudden they need, need to be called out and boycotted because they didn't speak up. Where are we on woke capitalism, those who speak in favor of what is referred to as social justice and the attacks on those who remain silent? Are are you concerned about this? Well, one thing worth noting is to put this in context. So this isn't necessarily new. You know, I actually wrote a book about five years ago called The Intimidation Game. And a lot of it was on the tactics that the left was employing even back then, even years before it. Uh, against uh, corporations, against um, industry groups, you know, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to to basically kind of intimidate them into adopting their policy agenda. And, you know, they've already been successful to a certain degree if you look around on a number of issues, for instance, climate, um, you know, the number of big banks now that are saying that they don't want to fund any fossil fuel projects or, you know, even the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has this official climate agenda. Even the American Petroleum Institute, you know, is debating uh, getting on board with this. Uh, And things that, by the way, are clearly not in the interest of their businesses or their customers. Um, And but we have seen in general companies, nonetheless, try their hardest other than some of these key issues to to avoid getting pulled into the political fray. And that has now all changed. Um, it was quite stunning to see corporate America step up and say it had an obligation to do this because the actual reality and mentality that has dominated corporations and the healthy mentality is that what you really want to do is have both political parties on side. And that's, by the way, that the big difference of what happened in Georgia is that In the past, you might see companies step out on a policy issue here or there, Um, but what you've never done is actually seen them take a political side, a partisan side, and say Republicans are actually doing an evil thing. Um, And the risk of that is, you know, look around and when you look at corporate America, who has been the most consistent and sometimes the only defenders of the free enterprise system that they operate in, it is Republicans. They're getting a lot of doors slammed in their face in Washington right now. I think that's why you've seen some companies step back, um, because this was arguably a big mistake. They exist to help their shareholders, and alienating an entire political party in the country is not good for your long-term prospects.
Do you think it has surprised some companies that this has been the case? Maybe they think the prevailing narrative, if they watch certain news outlets, is that America's on board with them with a certain way of thinking, and then they step back and realize, oh my goodness, the majority of Americans do support voter ID laws. I didn't realize that. Does this come as a shock? I'm trying to understand, does this come from intimidation, so they feel like they have to, or do they think they're making a good business decision when they move forward with with siding with a political party? I think a lot of it comes with fear and then short-term thinking. So, you know, take the example of Major League Baseball uh, deciding not to hold its game in Atlanta. By most press reports, uh, this action was taken in part because they were warned that if they went ahead that they might have certain uh, minority players who would refuse to take part. And you, you can have no doubt that that sent a concern through them. Uh, that they were going to have a PR problem on their hands. But that gets to the short-termism, so they decide to move, not realizing that the potential PR problem of doing that is going to be 10 times as much as not having a couple of players take part. So I think that there's not always – this is one of the problems we have, a a greater problem we have in corporate America. We talk about this a lot, uh, corporations that are – to short-termism, you know, ruled by their quarterly reports and the stock market, et cetera. Um, it's, a, it's a big departure, again, from – look, when you look around, most corporations, you look at, for instance, their political donations, they're usually like 40% to the party they think is going to lose, 60% to the party they think they're going to win. <laughs> hedging their bets, yes. On the time, <laughs> you know, but hedging their bets, but never kind of moving too far out of that 60-40 lane. Um, because they understand the risks. And this was short-term thinking, motivated by fear. And I think one of the things, too, is, uh, you know, at some point the right's going to have to figure out a way to better send their message to corporations as well, too, and let them know that, you know, they don't appreciate all of this and and may choose to go shop or buy services elsewhere if, if they got a company that's in their face constantly on politics. Let's talk about what this means for journalism. You've been working in the field for a while, and you've seen the state of journalism change over the years. What is it like to be a journalist in today's environment? Do you think how the press covers administrations, how the press covers the news is similar to what we saw maybe a decade ago, or have you seen a lot of change and maybe change that's not going in the right direction? Well, first of all, you're very kind. I've been working in it for more than just a while. I've been laboring <laughs> it for decades. I'm really old. You look very young, so um, I'm just going by Oh, luck. no. Uh, it's changed overwhelmingly. But the, the thing that I think that is a little uh, frightening to me is how quickly that has happened. Um, I wouldn't even date it so much to 10 years ago as much as, well, you know, four and a half years ago, five years ago. And it really was the election of Donald Trump. And what you saw in the press and, you know, look, we've always, everyone understands, we've seen the surveys and the polls and everyone knows that most newsrooms, journalists tilt to the left. Um, You know, but I, I believe that other than you know, some agenda-driven journalism often had to do with policies or, you know, the choice of topics uh, or simply a little bit of ignorance. Like I, I always made the argument that the, the old-fashioned kind of media bias, the kind that I actually miss these days because it was better than what we've got now, 
was just from people who actually didn't even know they were biased, right? They all went to the same colleges together. They all think the same. Uh, and so it wasn't that they were getting up and saying, today I'm going to take it to one side. They just sort of wrote their worldview, and that worldview tends to lean in one direction. What's changed is the election of Donald Trump inspired a number of newsrooms to decide that they were entitled to, in fact, they had an obligation to now take a side uh, because somehow they were speaking truth to power. And they completely abandoned any sense of fairness um, or, you know, even truth in their journalism. And I know there was a lot of hope that this was going to switch back, perhaps when Joe Biden got elected. But, you know, once you've got that new approach uh, between your teeth, not people, many people aren't willingly going to give it up. So, yeah, it's it's changed a great deal. I think it's done enormous damage to the reputation of the industry. I think it's doing enormous damage to the country. You need a functioning fourth estate in a country to keep people honest, but they have to keep both sides honest. And right now, we basically have a, a partisan press that's acting as an adjunct to one party in the country. And how much do you attribute to that the young people who are coming into these jobs, who are coming from more left-leaning left-leaning universities, who have a different worldview, versus it is some of those standard bears who've decided to become more politically active? I mean, is it is it a combination of both? So I actually would put it more on the editors and the owners of the company, because, look, we always have idealistic young people coming into newsrooms and um, and and voicing their ideas of how things should change or how things should work. But what you've always had are that the grownups in the room uh, saying, you know, this is what we exist to do. These are the kind of rules of journalism. These are the standards. Uh, you know, editors are there to do that, right? They're the, the second look, the third look. They're helping shape coverage uh, and, and, and owners as well, too. And you expect them to not give in. Now, look, I, I'd like to throw in here. I think I love working for the Wall Street Journal. I think we are an amazing institution and we've had consistently high quality on, you know, that I speak on the news side, the editorial page. I I'm proud to work there, but, you know, take the example of the New York times, you know, you have the, the editorial page editor who runs an op-ed from a sitting United States Senator and the blowback is huge. That's what's changed is that in the past, yeah, you can run controversial things and you have the backing of your superiors because that's what you're in the business to do, especially on an editorial page. Instead, they caved and he was out on his ear. So those are the people I put a little bit more responsibility on. And final question for you is about what do you expect in the midterm? So as we see people losing trust in the institutions of the press, people are worried about voting, whether or not they can trust whether or not votes are accurate. And by the way, Democrats question votes in 2016, Republicans in 2020. So in my opinion, this is a bipartisan concern that people have. You also have more of this, um, virtual signaling going on. You have critical race theory entering schools. And so as we see more of this progressive policy seep into so many different institutions, does this hurt Joe Biden? Does this hurt the Repu or the Democrat Party in midterms and in four years from now? Because the realization is America's not all there. Some are, but not all Americans are there. 
Yeah, well, historically, as we all know, uh, the party in power tends to lose seats in midterms elections. So Republicans have that going for them. Uh, I think that Democrats are also laying the groundwork for the kind of blowback that you saw in the 2010 midterms, which let's remember was one of the Republicans' biggest days, especially in the House, in like 60 years. Uh, And this was a response uh, of the nation to a lot of policies from Barack Obama that they viewed as uh, a lot more radical than anyone had thought they were signing up for when they put him in office, whether it was a stimulus or Obamacare or the attempt to pass a sweeping climate bill, which didn't in the end. But um, there was certainly pushback in the country. I think the one thing that is the wild card here, though, is the state of the GOP. And we still don't know where that really is uh, with Donald Trump out of office. Um, You know, what kind of role does he end up playing in the party? Is it one that attempts to truly get behind the kind of best candidates, um, support them, or are there divisions and nasty primaries that pull the party apart Um, and potentially elevate a a candidate that is not in the best position to win a general election. Um, And the other thing, too, that's a wild card is Republicans, yet again, have a a lot more people up in the Senate than do Democrats that are in uh, tough seats. So now they're making their own plays. They've marked out people that they're going to go after, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire and Mark Kelly out in Arizona. Um, uh, so they've got a, a list themselves, but uh, we, I think we're going to be another kind of year along before we have a, a better sense of where midterms turn out. And there's no doubt there's still a lot of moving parts, which is why if people want more of your political insight, they should check out your weekly political column, Potomac Watch, which is with the Wall Street Journal. Also, the book that you mentioned, The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech, is available for purchase. And also your latest book, Resistance at All Costs, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. So people should go out and get those. But for now, Kimberly Strassel, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your political insight during very interesting times. Thanks, Beverly. And thank you for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. And last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. Also, we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.